0: Christmas, a time for reflection, for celebration, and for taking stock of the past year, or the past 80. For this special episode of Histories, legendary player, coach and manager Craig Brown talks about some memorable Kilmarnock figures of years gone by, and his own experiences as a player at the club. Spend some time by the fireplace this Christmas Eve with a Scottish football icon. I'm Gordon Gillan and this is Craig Brown's Clamonic Carol Stave 1 Ghosting Young Clark Craig, Steve Clark was voted Chelsea's Number one right back of all time. Do you think he maybe could have won more Scotland caps? Well, uh, Gordon, I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head there. I've got to admit that we were well served in the full back positions with the Scottish team.
1: But you're right; he should have had more caps. The one cap that I remember when it started putting him in the team was a difficult away game against Holland, and uh, the Netherlands had qualified for the World Cup in '94. We hadn't qualified, and they were looking for friendly matches before they went to America. And of course, they looked a nice easy friendly, <laughs> so they asked Scotland to go over. And I'll never forget the occasion. It was the whole stadium was orange. You know, the hooters were going, flares were going. Up. This was the last match before they departed to go to uh, over to America and in our team we had a bother, this was in the summer because our boys had finished the season two weeks before it and we were boy bother get the team together but uh, I managed to get a team, Steve Clark was in the team and uh, Aberdeen were in Canada, Celtic were in Canada and they had come back from a holiday really so, I remember that Ruth Hoolett was up front against Brian Irwin for, so it seemed a bit of a mismatch. Anyway, Stevie Clark played and he had a very hard time because they had flying wingers. Steve was no slouch but they had over Mars and Zenden and they swapped them over from wing to wing and Rijkaard uh, in midfield and the right midfield was supplying the winger there whether it was the over Mars or Zenden and Stevie had a hard game and As a result of that, I didn't pick him for the next uh, few international, I think he got six caps, But, uh, he was very unfortunate. He was asked to play when the rest of the team had been, he had been hauled too, and therefore I'm apologising quite unashamedly to Steve Clark because I knew his ability. I saw him at Chelsea, I was down watching Nevin often, and uh, Clark was outstanding. Fortunately, he's never held it against me, I got on well with him. Except last season, <laughs> I met him when he got the Scotland job, and uh, I said, how, do you, how are you doing, Steve? Congratulations, and he smiled. And uh, I said, Can I ask you a question? What was it like being manager of the second best team in Ayrshire now? Because he knew I came from the air and I lived in it. He says the third best. Did the Talbot not beat and mob in the cup? Which I thought was a broken response. So he put me right in my place and proved that he had a really sharp sense of humour and I really enjoyed I enjoy having a word when a chance. He goes to a lot of games, obviously, and I'm at every Aberdeen game, and he's in the boardroom. And, but his performance as the manager of the commandment was exceptional, and the respect that they had in the country when he got the job, it was so well-deserved. Well, the thing that stood out to was his, his response. You know, now, you could argue he's playing big team in England and London and Chelsea, and people said to me, you know, these big timers, particularly the Anglos, must be hard to handle and I found the very opposite. I found guys like Steve Clark were so responsive and anything they were asked to do in training or in the game, there was not a hesitation. Now, they might not have agreed with the system or with the request made of them, but the, the immediate response was uh, very noticeable. It was instantaneous. There was no question. For example, I used to say to the right back, you know, I used to mark, and in the days gone by, we marked both posts I a corner. <laughs> there was a man at both posts, and I put a right-footed man at the left post and a left-footed man at the right-hand post. And they looked at me sometimes and said, oh, why are we doing this? Well, I said, if you're right-footed and you're on the left-hand post you're defending the goal with your strong leg the ball beats the goalkeeper you're coming across and defending now small things like that you know you would see the brows furrowing he my us to do this but
0: uh, whatever Steve was asked to do and also when I watched him play he had every attribute he was pacey he was a very good tackler and a very good user of the ball so <laughs> what more do you want his acceptance that that was the thing to do. Do you think that was tacit understanding of what was required, or was it a deference to the authority of the position of manager?
1: I think both. I do think both. You know, I, I used to if I was asking if I was asking them to do something, I would try to put a reason in the instruction. Now, you know, there are some managers, and I worked for them and I've heard them, and they'll say, "You'll do this and you'll do that." For example, your wall, defensive wall, they'll say to you, make sure you got your toes or, or something like that. And I used to say to them, the wall jumps; it's a synchronized jump. It'll give you an extra few inches. If the ball's going over with like more chances. And I used to slope my wall, but like the smallest player was in the middle of the goal. Now, when I was sloping that, I was telling them the reason. I was saying, we're having a sloping wall. The smallest guy in the wall will be. In the, the bit in the middle of the goal the tallest over the guy at the post one player without with the post and you you would explain why small guy is it so that the goalkeeper has longer chance longer time to see it if it's going over the wall you know small things like that and you know a guy like steve clark i don't know what he did at his club but when i told him what to do there wasn't a, there wasn't the slightest hesitation and that was the case i think with most uh, top
0: class players they were very very responsive some people would then say, I guess, and, and this is where the, it's the demeanour of a manager like Steve Clark. It, that's what's striking a chord with me. His demeanour was was described by quite, quite a lot of Kilmarik fans as schoolteacherly. And I wonder, when you're talking about that consistency, does your background in education factor into that in any way? I think I think you've got to be consistent,
1: and, and it's, it's pretty obvious you've not to have favourites. You, know, hmm. you do have favourites, but uh, I think it's important that it's not obvious either in your selection or in your talking to the players you know there are accusations of some managers they'll hammer the young boys you know the new boys the commander you know when a young boy like Ronnie Hammond comes into the team and he's only 16 he's easy he's easy to attack whereas you wouldn't say the same to Jackie McGrory because Jackie has or find Frank Beatty, because they're, they're going to lower at you. There's that accusation of some managers. Well, it's a, it's a soft option. They're frustrated, they've had a poor performance, and they have a blast at the team, and they, they hammer the young ones, and the, the older ones they don't. So I think consistency of treatment is a priority.
0: Steve 2. Mr Waddle and the year 1957.
1: football in Hamilton and Comarnock had a reputation of having the best amateur team under 18 team in Scotland their only rival was Drumchapel Amateurs in Glasgow and they were the major rivals under 18 in the whole of the country Schoolboys teams and uh, I know they wanted Billy McNeil who played with me in the Scottish school boys uh, uh, to go but Billy was Celtic through and through there wasn't a chance of Billy going anywhere other than Celtic but they came and they asked me and I said yeah delighted I I, I drove over the you know through the valley to New Mills Gorson to Kilmerna several times a week to train with Kilmerna amateurs and, and uh, as I say I played there with uh, Hugh Brown and Pat O'Connor and the manager Of the first team was Willie Waddle. And I've got to compliment Willie Waddle because he took an interest in the whole club right through. He knew everybody's name, he knew all the young boys. I was young brown, I wasn't Craig. I I was exalted, when I went to Dundee, I was exalted to the deity by the manager Shankly. I was never Craig, I was Christ Craig. (laughs) And even if I had a good game, I'd say, Christ Craig, that wasn't bad today, son. But but Willie Waddle called me young brown. How are, you, how are you feeling now about How are you playing Saturday, youngbrow? You know, and you felt, here is the first team manager, you know, and he was reckoned to be hard, uh, unapproachable and hard to penetrate uh, Willie Waddle because he was uh, a bit, some thought he was a bit of a bully, but he had terrific discipline, but he also uh, had a heart and he had an interest in the youngsters. And uh, he certainly was uh, promoting the commodity amateurs team. And then, of course, he had with him the Saturday Major got <laughs> his trainer Walter McCready and that was some combination I wouldn't like to meet these two in a dark night eh? <laughs> but uh, they, they ran Commander probably as obviously the Commander fans know because he won the, the league and then in Europe and the European camp then there was some tremendous performances so you know, all credit to Commander Football Club years after, was he was writing for the Daily Express and no I don't know many years later I said before he, he, he got the job at Rangers. And he would even say, acknowledge me, you know, if they saw you somewhere, they would never pass you. Now that's quite unusual, I've got to say now. And the reputation he had wasn't like that. The reputation he had was that he was gruff and unapproachable. Mm. But that was not my experience, I've got to say. When the first team manager is interested in you, it's a great motivation for you. You do your best, you, you pull out all the stops because... You're getting, you know you're getting there's attention on you and it's not the case everywhere like even today it's not the case you know when Willie Waddle, when I was a young boy from Ireland not all that long wasn't there that long but he knew me then any time after that when I came across him when he was either a journalist or another the manager of another team he
0: always said hello and, and how are you getting on and I'm following your career blah blah you know so I can't I can't in any way miscall him there's not a lot of recording of Willy Waddle, there's not a lot of audio, but the clips that you see here are there. Quite um He does come across as a slightly intimidating personality or persona, whichever one it actually is, but you can yes. see he had something about him quite clearly. Oh, presence, when you open the door, somebody comes in, uh, you know, and uh, people kind of jump to attention. Uh, there's no doubt he, he was an imposing character, uh,
1: and he had a good a- appearance, which was. And he was ruthless, and he was tough. And although, you know, most wingers are considered to be less than brave, he was a brave winger, as a player. I mean, he would tackle him and he wouldn't accept any full-back trying to bully him. He was an unusual character, I've got to say, to very successful. I think, the on, football club would agree to that. Yeah, we did things, same things in those the 60s when I was at the D. After every game, you took the laces out of your boots. And you wash them; they were put in the wash along with the strips. So you get new white laces every game. I don't know if Kamala did that, but but it just you know it's a small difference that uh, and you're responsible for your own boots and you take polish them and take the studs out and polish the soles so that the sole of your boot was a leather sole that the sole didn't hold the mud because it was polished. You know, and the mud didn't stick to it. So, I mean. Just simple things like that. And, and he was, Shankly was an insistent, insistent on the turnout. The jerseys were in, the stockings were the same, turnover at the top, and none of that. Never had that tape round about them for shingars or anything. He was so meticulous. Now, I think Waddle was a bit similar, I don't know, but I, I need to look at the Kamalik photographs of the team. But I see them in that article I wrote uh, that I sent you. see one, two, three, four, it here, here, and three, seven of the team holding the cup, eight of them walking round, and every jersey's inside the shorts. There's no daft hats, there's no scarves, there's no... They're very respectful of the kit at the strip, the uniform of Kamarnock Football Club. I love these standards, I think that's great, that you you just don't mess your... You're given a jersey and you don't put it outside. But that's an old-fashioned man talking here. You know, I'm looking at the Kamarnock team and I was unaware of it, but this is after the game. Now, there's every reason that during the game the jersey might have slipped out or you might want to get out, but and I see there's another picture of hugging Willie Waddle at the end of the game. Again, all at all they're as smart as you could possibly be and that, that's the end of the game. From my point of view it's very well worth mentioning because it's I, I call that standards. Yes. And, and and I call that discipline. And they've been told by their manager, Mr Waddle. You're smart and you stay smart now. I tell
0: you that we were told that it didn't you? and there was no messing about. Stave three. Young Brown and of legendary moments. I'm sure there'll be some Kilmarnock fans don't know or didn't didn't know that you started with Kilmarnock amateurs. But for those who aren't maybe as aware of the, the significance of amateur football in the sixties, what was the role of that tier of football? success in the
1: 60s and and, uh, the perfect example is Glasgow Celtic who won the European Cup and when you look at the Glasgow Celtic team that won the European Cup, 10 of the 11, and this is quite a remarkable statistic, 10 of the 11 played junior football. Now that amazes people and in fact the man that scored the most important goal ever in Scottish football, Steve Chalmers, Steve Chalmers was playing junior football for Ashfield Juniors when he was 23, and he scored the winning goal in the European Cup final. It's quite remarkable. Now, every one of them, they all played, you know, the big, big Billy, my friend, he played for Blinta, uh, Victoria. Jimmy Johnson went to uh, Celtic, and Bobby Murdoch was at Canberra Slang Rangers, and, uh, Ken, well, Kenny, he wasn't that team, but he played junior at Cumbernault. So, you're saying, what was the route? The route to football... First team football, senior football, was school team, amateur team. Not the clubs didn't have didn't have youth teams then mm-hmm. the way they have now. The Rangers had a third team for a while in the in the Glasgow league. They called it, you know. <laughs> I think it was the churches league or something. They had a third team, and of course the boys joked to me, "You were in the third team." I said, "I there wasn't a fourth team." So I went but, <laughs> credit because in particular the manager I don't know if it was Willie Waddell's idea but Willie Waddell was determined to get the best young players in the west of Scotland nowadays you have to if you want into a European license you have to have a youth team the the clubs who want to play in Europe you've got to have a youth team and that's a UEFA ruling I don't think it's a good one but uh, but the UEFA argument is that if you go to a senior club the coaching will be better, the facilities will be better and it'll make the young players better. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that but uh, I think they should with their own town team, you know, their there's local team until they're at 14 or 15. The 4 your league-winning team were part-time players. Ronnie Hamilton was one. He's an accountant, isn't he? Yes. Uh, I mentioned Jim McFadgett, a PE teacher. Uh, I don't know what uh, the old team Ferguson did but uh, he was a part-timer, and uh, Bertie Black was a part-timer. and The rest were full-time professionals. To think that a team containing four part-time players could beat the German to a Meintracht-Lankford 5-1, the mind boggles. It's just unbelievable. But I mean, when you're talking about part-time, hey, McFadden was as fit as anyone would be as a PE student and teacher. Ronnie Allen was naturally fit and very conscientious, I'm sure, would train as hard, but it seems, I would say, axiomatic that you've got to work as a team to get the team together, but Commandant managed to do it quite impressively with four uh, part-time players. Commandant were exceptional. When they won the league, Commandant players would, uh, I'm guessing, based on the the kind of Dundee uh, it would be around uh, thirty pounds a week basic, and maybe twenty extra to win. At uh, Dundee, we were uh, we get twenty five pounds a week, and uh, then it was it was increased to thirty, and and we get twenty five to win. Uh, now Ian Muir went from Dundee the year they
0: won the league sixty three to Arsenal, and his salary at Arsenal was fifty five pounds a week. Ian, I see it. Come on, games now, or now and again, not every game, but. He lives down here in Kilmarnock, and I see him at the Kilmarnock fixtures. But he went to a huge salary, fifty-five pounds a week. Arsenal. To be in the same pitch as a club like Eintracht Frankfurt is something. To beat them is something else. But then to come back from effectively four-nil down to win against a team that was European finalists three years before, I think. Yes, they were. Special times. Oh, fantastic! and we felt we the same at Dundee because the German champions are reckoned to be Germany it's obviously one of the major footballing nations and oh. Dundee beat the, the German champions Cologne FC Cologne it was 8-5 at aggregate because we lost 4 nothing in Cologne because they they were 8-1 down in the game in Dundee and the only way to get uh, any chance was to get the goalkeeper bound because there were no subs so you could you know, it looked quite deliberate. Bert Slater was the goalkeeper, he dived, and he was kicked in the head, accidentally, of course. He had to get go off, and they were down to 10 men. And an
1: outfield player, Andy Penman, went into goal. And I think it was a remarkable result, only to lose 4 nothing with an outfield player in goal and play with the rest of the game with 10 men. But the, the aggregate win was 8-5. Now, Kamala, the same against Frankfurt. You know, the, the aggregate 5-4 was terrific. It's just unbelievable. So, it tells you the question you asked me earlier. What was the standard of football like in Scotland uh, in the past? And I'm not seeing the past through rose-coloured spectacles. Mm. Being honest here, the standard was as good as anything in Europe then with the top teams. And Camarna was one of the top teams. So they could compete with any top team in Europe in those days.
0: Stage four. Merriment with that good fellow Mr. Burns.
1: Tommy Burns is the manager of command Football Club and very well regarded. I loved him. Before he was the command manager, he was, he was playing well, he was playing at Celtic, and we had him on the bench in the game against England. It was a Rouse Cup game at Wembley, and this is my first really meeting with Tommy because I had him in the training, he was on the bench, and Andy Rocks says to me, I think we're losing one. I think get Tommy warmed up. So I shout someone, Tommy, get warmed up. Okay, big smile. And he he kept warming up. I says, Andy, what are you He's warmed up, he's ready to go on. And says, Well, we'll leave it just a minute, just a minute. So he ran past me and and he says, Am I going on? I says, Well, we're thinking about it. He's done a minute, like with Tommy. So Andy says, Put him on, Craig. So he came here, This you're going on. And I think he was going on for Neil Simpson in midfield, something like that. So he's taking the strike off and getting ready to go on. And Andy Rocks was sitting next to me. And Tommy Burns went to Andy Rocks, and he put two hands on his shoulders. And he looked him right in the eye. He says, boss, he says, I can't thank you enough. He says, this is a lifetime's ambition to play for Scotland against England at Wembley. Thank you very much. (laughs) I mean, the tears are under my face. You know, now, how many players would say that to the manager? I said, I just want to thank you. Our lifetime's ambition. When we were the Scottish team, he did his singing. He did, uh, we used to have a singing competition with the team. And Tommy always won it. Uh, Mike the Knife was Tommy's song. McCoy did the rap. And it was a clapometer afterwards. Player uh, playing with the biggest cheer, Mike the Knife always won. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was fantastic. So you know, as as well as being a, a wonderful guy, mm. he he was a great help to me, which I happily acknowledge. I mean, I was honored. I was asked to speak at his Burns supper. Certainly have a Burns supper, and it's not Robbie Burns' it's Tommy Burns, mm. <laughs> <laughs> but they're having Robbie Burns' night. It was great. I, I invited to it, and of course, I just told stories about Tommy Burns or, or made them up. Yeah. And, uh, and I always tell that one about him advising me to put Don Hutchison up front. I, mean, yeah, I could never have got better advice from anyone at any time than I got from Tommy Burns. I, know, I, mean, the only, I think the only place he would have gone, you know, one of them, was going to Celtic. But you know, I, I have the highest regard for him, obviously. And both as a player and as a, as a manager and as a singer. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great centre. And he came in the coaching course, he said, we'd love to get him into the pub and give us a song, Tommy. And I remember a boat trip we had to Rossi. And we got a fishing captain to take the coaches for a night out over to Rossi. And we a, in the pub there, and he was up on the table in the pub, singing, <laughs> making a <the> knife. <laughs> Fantastic. Followed by
0: McCoy. Not so good. <laughs> Craig Brown, a one-off. It was a personal honour for me to speak with Craig. Still the most recent manager to lead the men's team to a World Cup Finals. For now. I owe him huge thanks for his time and for his contributions to a future episode. Thank you also to Killy Trust Director James Morrison for setting up this interview. The music is by TRG Banks and the sound effects by zatsplats.com Both are used under universal license. You can find past episodes of Killy Histories on all good podcast sites. And don't forget to follow on Twitter at Kili Histories. Histories will be back in 2021 with a new series. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time. Stay 5 The ending of Mr. Montgomery I see, I see he always wakes me up and
1: uh, I introduce him to Sure Mill or the directors of Aberdeen I say this is the man that Captain Colbert when they won the cup you know and Monty smiles and he says aye and this is the man that he never gave a cap to <laughs> he says about me you know so I say that's because you were shy you know <laughs> so but he laughs and, and the banter is very good with Monty